Welcome to Outspoken, a podcast for social change where we talk about current events and how they relate to interpersonal violence and abuse. Outspoken is a project of the Hayes Caldwell Women's Center located in San Marcos, Texas. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse and is seeking support, services, or needs more information, links to resources can be found in our episode description. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not reflect the views of their organizations or affiliates. Welcome back to Outspoken, a podcast for social change. I'm Kema. I'm Kiara. I'm Megan. And I'm Nathan. Last episode, we discussed consent, and today we are doing part two, creating consent culture. If you haven't had a chance yet, go back and check out episode four called Breaking Down Consent. We ended last episode wanting to talk more about how we can work towards a consent culture and better support survivors. Yeah, so I want to start by explaining what rape culture and consent culture is. So I guess we can't, uh, we shouldn't just start talking about creating a consent culture until we understand what we're trying to get away from, which is, um, you know, what would be rape culture. It's it's often a what is referred to as uh, a culture where sexual violence is normalized Victims are blamed for their own assaults or their own abuse that they experience, Um, a culture that protects rapists, shames victims, and also demands unreasonable action to avoid sexual assault. So this can be things that we see like, you know, watch your drink, travel in. uh, She was was walking alone. What did she expect? Or or they, you know, they went here at night. You know, it's, it's putting that responsibility on the person who's experienced the violence versus the responsibility on the person who's perpetrating violence. Rape culture is also um, can be a, fa- uh, a belief that men aren't victims as well. Um, people can have a very strong idea of what a victim looks like and what a perpetrator looks like. And what we know is that when we have those really strong beliefs of like, this is what a victim is and this is what a perpetrator is, it leads a lot of people out of the conver- out, out of the conversation and it keeps a lot of people from getting help that they need because there isn't a one type of victim or one type of perpetrator and that's what we're going to you know hopefully break down a little bit today but basically these behaviors are uh, you know violence happens on a continuum so these behaviors escalate when they're ignored so it might be something as it might seem innocent like an innocent joke someone na- makes but if a person you know gets away with this joke the next time it could be it could be escalated to maybe from calling someone a name to like grabbing their arm. So those type of situations can escalate if we continue to normalize them and then also continue to put all that responsibility on the on the victim and not, you know, the person who's actually doing the perpetration. So on the other hand of that, uh, when we say we want to create a consent culture or we'd like to work towards a culture that normalizes consent in our everyday interactions and that uh, when someone doesn't have consent, it's very obvious and something that people would notice greatly, which we don't necessarily do now. We still have a lot of interactions in our day-to-day life that are a um, assumed consent. So we still don't, yeah. (laughs) So we still aren't not quite there yet. So we want to talk a little bit about that today and how we can not only, you know, normalize consent in all our interactions, but in doing so, that will, you know, put the responsibility where it belongs, which is on the perpetrator and the people who do these things. And doesn't make it to where it's awkward or uncomfortable or is seen as like changing the mood or the vibe just by checking in with somebody to make sure that they're okay. 
in everyday interactions where maybe some people think that it means you're being too sensitive or you're having to be too aware of yourself and other people. But we think that it's good. It's good to be aware of the interactions you're having with other people. Um, and in turn, it we hope that it creates a culture where people want to do that for you as well and make sure that you're okay too. Yeah. So how do we work towards creating consent culture? I mean, that's the whole purpose of the conversation that we're having here. And we have like a few points of like different ways to do that, starting with just changing public perceptions when survivors speak out. And Megan, you were talking about what happens with rape culture where sexual violence is normalized and that oftentimes the responsibility or the blame is placed on the person who's been sexually assaulted or they've experienced abuse in some way. Mm -hmm. And we want to shift away from that to um, trying to change that perception where there's not as many high expectations for survivors. It feels like a lot of times when people come forward and say that they've experienced sexual assault and abuse, that there's this idea of what a perfect victim looks like, that people are more likely to believe it if you did all of the things that people sort of expect you to do to protect yourself that come along with rape culture. And it's not to say that protecting yourself is a bad thing. Um, unfortunately, we still live in a society where people need to protect themselves from violent crimes um, and people taking advantage of them. Those are all good things to be able to protect yourself. But Imagine what it would be like if we lived in a world or in a community where you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to be afraid of going out of like walking alone by yourself at night or watching your drink at a bar or being afraid that if you tell somebody that somebody assaulted you, that you're not going to get questioned about what you were doing or what you were wearing or why you didn't take your pepper spray with you. It's so true. There's the there's unreasonable expectations that we have for victims of violent or victims of abuse and victims of sexual assault that we don't have for any other violent crime. Yeah. Like no one would get robbed and you'd say, Well, what were you doing carrying your purse like that in the middle, you know, walking down that like no one would respond that way. But we it's almost like a knee jerk or it feels sometimes like a knee jerk reaction when we're talking about sexual assault or abuse. Yeah, which kind of ties into, I guess, a lot of self-preservation that people have for themselves. Of It's a fear that a lot of people live with, specifically women. Like if we're being honest, a lot of women live with that fear um, of experiencing sexual assault. And it feels like there's more protection if you say, well, if I don't walk by myself, if I watch my drink, if I carry pepper spray, if I take the self-defense class, I'm decreasing my risk of this happening to me or I feel prepared mm -hmm. to fight back if somebody does try to do this to me. And if you hear that somebody else did all of those things, then it still it sort of feeds into that fear that you have of, well, I could do all of those things and I can do mm -hmm. all of the right things and this could still happen to me. And that's scary. So it's a little bit easier to put the responsibility on the person who's experienced sexual assault, the victim or survivor, because then it's, mm -hmm. well, then you must have not been doing what you needed to do to protect yourself. But it also changing public perceptions also has to do with uh, our perception of what a perpetrator looks like um, and who's perpetrating sexual mm -hmm. violence. And it a lot of the time when we think of like the perpetrator of sexual violence, it's a stereotype of the person who's 
creepy or they're aggressive, maybe they are not socialized well, um, that there's sort of clues and signs people want to be able to pick up on. I won't specific- the white, the white yeah, hair, so I was saying, I was like sketchy the, mustache. The thing with the kids, right? Like with children, yes. it's like the white, yeah, the white van with the person who looks like a police sketch who wears like a certain kind of jacket. Yeah, a person where you're like, if you saw them, please stay away because something feels off. Mm-hmm. There feels, there's some agency and to protect yourself when you have an idea in your mind of what this person might look like and that person can look like that but that person can also be somebody that you know and oftentimes it is somebody that you know and you have some type of relationship with it could be an acquaintance relationship it could be a close personal relationship Um, it can be somebody that's well liked that you don't Mm -hmm. expect to do this to other people. And we've talked about this a little bit, I think, in the past episode, that sexual violence is about power and control. It's a crime of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And people that you like can do this too, um, that some people think that maybe it has to do with sex. Um, So maybe they don't understand why the person who has a lot of sexual relationships with other people might commit sexual violence against somebody else. But Mm-hmm. I got to expand or even eliminate the perception in our brain of like what it means to be a victim, the person who's going to be victimized and the person who's going to perpetrate sexual violence um, against somebody else. And looking back on one of the headlines that we talked about in a previous episode in episode four, we had talked about actress Evan Rachel Wood um, speaking out against uh, Marilyn Manson, the musician, having said that she's experienced uh, many forms of abuse, relationship abuse, and sexual violence. And talking about victim blaming back in the early 2000s, I feel like people maybe now aren't super familiar with Perez Hilton. <laughs> I don't think he gets as much attention now. He's still out there. But at the time, he was like this Mm -hmm. famous gossip blogger who was famous for a lot violating people's boundaries and just saying really shocking Mm -hmm. things. But he had published a photo on his blog calling Evan Rachel Wood Evan Rachel Whore because she was speaking out about what was happening to her. And that's Mm -hmm. an example of victim blaming, right? Like putting that responsibility on her instead of calling out Marilyn Manson for having done this to somebody else. And it contributes to a, uh, it contributed to Evan Rachel Wood's choice to stay silent and not continue to speak out about what happened to her. And in turn, it also enabled Marilyn Manson to continue doing things like this to other people because there really wasn't a lot of accountability that was there because of the victim blaming. I think that's such a good point because like if we, if you're afraid to, if, if we're forcing people into silence because of what the outcome is going to be when they come out, then that definitely is going to allow that person to just continue to abusing, to continue abuse because they get away with it and they have society blaming the victims instead of them. Yeah. And it also perpetuates the rape culture because it tells mm-hmm. uh, p- perpetrators that when they do this, they're going to have people that are on their side especially if they selectively choose their victims and secondly it tells victims that when they come out they have the they're going to get backlash and they're going to be called mm-hmm. you know terrible names and they're they're not going to be believed or they or it's going to be minimized going from what um Nathan said it just reminds me about like all of these YouTubers and TikTok stars where they just go straight to Twitter and they're just like oh I'm so sorry and they know that they're 
their fan base or their viewers are going to have their back. They're immediately like, oh, don't worry. And Mm -hmm. everything's okay. You know, you made a mistake. And then they go off on these rants, uh, especially talking like extremely bad about the victim, about how, why would you, why would this um, person do this? Like you're lying, you're horrible. And usually, I don't know. I feel like it just, it just feels like they have like, um, like the security net. Like, their Mm -hmm. viewers are their security net, and no matter what they do, like, they know that someone's going to have their back. And now they can play the victim. Now they can be like, oh, they're lying about me because I'm so well-liked and popular and famous. They're trying to attack me, and this is, like, them trying to get at me, and I'm the victim now. And it's like a – they try to flip the script, and then they – because they have those supporters, it's like they get away with it, and people still support them. Yeah, Yeah. it's sort of – I think a lot of time people think that – uh, speaking out against sexual like somebody has sexually assaulted you and saying hey this naming the person who did it to you sometimes people are like you're out to ruin this person's life or they see mm-hmm. it as well this person made a mistake and you're not we shouldn't be crucifying them for the rest of their life for making a mistake thinking about the consequences and having a lot of empathy for the perpetrator but not having the same amount of empathy Mm -hmm. and thinking about the future of the victim and like what that's going to be for them healing and moving forward and what it's going to look like moving through the system to try to get justice which is why so many people don't speak up and then whenever they do it's usually when there's power in numbers right like we Mm -hmm. see all that with the me too movement that sometimes when it's one person then it's a few other people that follow um i'm thinking specifically just last night i was watching the netflix documentary i think it's called athlete a about the sexual abuse that happened within the u.s gymnastics olympics Mm -hmm. team Mm -hmm. yeah and how a lot of them didn't speak up or say anything for a very long time because they didn't think that they were going to be believed and they thought well maybe I'm the only one or whenever they did bring it out to other people other people minimized it Um, Mm -hmm. we're not going to make a report to the police are you sure that this is what happened to you no this is normal Um, this person is well liked and they're well respected so it's scary to try to speak up because even with having those numbers it's still not guaranteed that people are going to believe you and anybody else who has said that it's happened to them that's true. There's still a lot of very strong denials um, in cases, even when there's a lot of a lot of people um, saying this happened. There's still a lot of strong denials in those cases, so it's hard to. I mean, it definitely does help. I think it becomes, as far as like the public perception, I think when there's a lot of numbers, it helps. But I do feel like there's still that like group of people who are gonna, they don't want to believe it's true. Yeah, and part of. Part of rape culture or part of our current culture is this belief that uh, all of these or many of these accusations are are false accusations and that people Mm -hmm. that there's a it's so, I guess, in vogue to call out somebody or cancel somebody. So you're going to make up uh, something Mm -hmm. that happened and maybe it was, you know consensual at the time but now you are upset with this person or whatever so you're gonna you're gonna come up with this false narrative and that's mm-hmm. that's actually a myth it's just something that that we kind of have told ourselves as a society to make ourselves i guess hide from the reality that this happens so often mm-hmm. and so if you're wondering how often f- false accusations uh there's been a lot of of studies on this and uh the 
the number that they have come with up with is about two to eight percent of uh, sexual assault allegations are have come out as being false, and mm-hmm. that is the normal amount for any crime. So let's say you fought, filed a police report on someone for child abuse or for th- uh, uh, robbing you or from you know, for whatever the stolen property. stolen property. Mm-hmm. The, those are mm-hmm. the two to eight percent is is about the normal uh, that we have for uh, false accusations. So, but when we hear about false accusations for sexual assault, People think it's like an epidemic that's for sexual assault only, and it's not. It's ex- exactly, <laughs> yeah. or people, it's just, it's just another way to disbelieve uh, women, essentially, uh, and this is not a new concept. So, like historically, I did a little bit of research on this, and and historically, there have been a lot of this whole false accusation myth has been perpetuated for hundreds of years literally so i found mm-hmm. a a uh, quote from a, a a very important rape case in 1680 that was forever ago and uh this british <laughs> jurist who was named lord hale said uh rape is an accusation easily easy to be made and hard to be proved and harder to be defended by the party accused though never so innocent so, first of all, that's assuming the innocence of a of the person uh, accused of rape, and also minimizing the victim's experience. And that that's something that literally you could hear. I could hear a uh, a d- defense attorney saying that today, and people would shake yeah, their yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and they do. Um, another quote. And and this this trial actually heavily influenced uh, the U.S. Uh, justice system. Um, in a in a famous 18th century rape trial, uh, the defense attorney warned the jury that the rape charge places the life of a citizen in the hands of a woman, and that mm-hmm. is you know you know obviously problematic in a lot of ways. Which even the phrasing of that the life of a citizen in the mm-hmm. hands of a woman as if women aren't citizens. I don't know I I was actually just wondering if at this time if they were considered. Right, that's true. And I remember I think last episode we were we actually were talking a little bit about how a lot of this derived from the idea of women being property and that in this kind of feels that this might be uh, what that's referring to. But I don't know. I Unfortunately, I'm not a story, historian, so I can't tell you, like, the year that women became, you know, had more uh, agency as far as, like, being considered citizens and stuff. But it definitely shows, like, what the cultural norm is either, you know, either way. Even if it was on paper, this is how people believed. Yeah, and the it's really problematic when we believe that ruining someone's life with a conviction of sexual assault is worse than the trauma that the victim has gone through. And I think that's a lot mm-hmm. of the issue that we go through now, even victims themselves Absolutely. who think, man, yeah, this person did this to me and I feel like they deserve punishment, but I don't want to ruin their lives. Maybe it was just a momentary mistake. Maybe they were, I don't know, what it, whatever's been said by people right. in the past, bad day or whatever. Mm-hmm. They And then the shame that goes into that, like, I am the reason that I'm ruining their life. Like, does the fact that I've gone through this trauma, do they deserve the same? But 
you just have to realize that you're not the one who perpetrated this this terrible thing. Mm-hmm. Right, because it's always a choice, but we see it in uh, a lot of, I think specifically about like athletes um, mm-hmm. and people like accusation of sexual assault against athletes. And we don't want to ruin this bright mon- young man's future, that there's a lot of life to be lived ahead of this person. So even people can say like, yes, they did this. Like I can, I believe that they did this, but should they not have a future as a result of it? And speaking of the statistic, I think that there's this public misperception or maybe I guess a perception that when people report sexual assault, that it usually happens the way that it does on uh, Law and Order mm-hmm. SVU, mm-hmm. where it gets reported and it's investigated and it goes to trial by a jury specifically and there's mm-hmm. justice and somebody gets locked away and somebody there that there's justice. And a lot of the time, unfortunately, there isn't justice like a very, very small percentage of those even make it into the criminal justice system because they're not reported. And when they do end up in the criminal justice system, whether there's a, a conviction, it, the percentage of that is even smaller. For sure. There's only about, I think, one to three percent of sexual yeah. assaults result in, in a conviction. I have to say, I just want to add real quick, because I keep thinking about um, if this is making me think of the Brock Turner case, because a lot of the yeah. conversation around that case was his future and was about like what that's going to look because he was a swimmer and uh, I want to say freshman in college or something. So a lot of it was like, what's his future going to look like? Who's he going to be? And I last year I read Chanel Miller's uh, biography about the about, you know, the events that took place and how she had to go to court. And, and it took over her life for two years. She was having it was she couldn't do anything but this like she through like her appointments with uh, lawyers through having to go to court cases through therapy all this stuff. so the whole idea of there like the, the woman like that she's just gonna you know report or the person's just gonna report this thing and then this person's gonna have the perpetrator's gonna have the swift justice their life is also what about their future you know what about the person yeah. who this happened to his future because now they don't get to just report it and walk away you know <laughs> this is it becomes if, if people who actually do uh you know, seek justice through that, through those means, like through the courts, it's a long drawn out process. It's not like you said, not what you see on TV. It's, it's brutal. You have, you know, it's having to retell your story over and over again. It's having to, um, you know, be ready to, for her, she had to be in a different city because she didn't live where the event had happened. So she was having to like, you know, rearrange her whole life so that she could, you know, go down to where these court cases were or court hearings were happening. Um, so it wasn't just like, oh, I reported this and now I'm going to move on my way. It's it was it yeah. took over her life. And justice isn't swift that exactly. if it does make it into getting into a a trial or some sort of um, hearing. I think I want to say that it's like an average of like two years. So you, there's mm-hmm. a lot of like time and like trying to move forward and healing and put things behind you. And then to get that call or that email or whatever of like it's we're ready to do this now and then you have to revisit that and be re-traumatized potentially and that's a really hard place to be in and then a lot of the conversation or a lot of you know the questioning she received was all about how much she drank and how she was and you know trying to paint her as this like party person when really the it had nothing to do with what the guy had done to her like it um she wasn't right. even like as, uh, 
anyway, sorry. Yeah, but it's <laughs> hard, right? Because the criminal justice system, it's you're innocent until proven guilty and it has to be without a reasonable, like without a doubt that it occurred. But when you live in a culture that places a lot of doubt around sexual violence, mm-hmm. then Of course, there's always going to be a doubt because it's part of your socialization to doubt that this even happens to people Mm -hmm. Um, unless it happens in a very picture perfect way, Um, which another media to check out. I want to say it's what is the it's a docuseries. It's not a docuseries. It's a fictionalized series that was on Netflix. I want to say unbelievable um, that sort Mm -hmm. of documents uh, a number of the experiences of a number of women who were sexually assaulted by like a serial rapist and Mm -hmm. how they had to be perfect victims throughout a lot of this this case so that's another series to watch and Mm -hmm. if you want to consume some media that looks specifically of like how this plays out with rape culture Mm -hmm. yeah that totally goes into like our perceptions as as citizens just what it means to how you react to sexual assault i know the the four of us part of our job is we actually go to the hospital and and meet with mm-hmm. people um as advocates uh of sexual assault and we can both all agree that you can never guess what how they're going to be it, they can be mm-hmm. the the entire gamut from totally in distress to seemingly fine to joking to you know the whole Mm -hmm. the whole spectrum so you know there's no single way that people react to this right which sort of also fits into that idea of like what a victim should be like if this happened to me i would be in shock i would be crying i would be hysterical i would be devastated and like you said a lot of people are but there are a lot of people who aren't kind of like the different ways that people deal with grief, which sort of ties back to one of the other headlines that we had talked about last episode with rapper T.I. and his wife, Tiny, who's also a musician, um, and how three more women have uh, mm-hmm. come out um, against them. But they are anonymous. They're unnamed and their names aren't out there. I guess that's the whole point of being unnamed. Um, and T.I. and Tiny's lawyers have made the argument that because their accusers are unnamed, that they're not credible. And they're not worthy of belief because Mm -hmm. they can't know who they are and try to discredit them in some way is my guess. Mm -hmm. But it still feeds into that victim blaming culture of they're they're not credible because of X, Y, and Z. And I I feel like it's also because um, society or just people in general have this, like, I guess they think that rape is always violent and it's like what they see in movies Mm -hmm. and it's just like... Um, a lot of the times it's not like that. Like a rape victim might leave a venue sad, depressed, or confused. Um, they're unsure mm-hmm. whether it was even rape or not. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have people being like, well, why didn't you speak immediately? Why didn't you go report this person immediately? But sometimes they just need the time to process what happened. And yeah, really since point. you didn't see someone running out screaming with a bloody eye, just because you didn't see that, it doesn't mean that it wasn't rape. Which mm-hmm. um, I feel like this whole perception of what, a rape incident looks like also feeds into like oh well it, it's probably not true it's a you know they're just making it up because they it doesn't fit what they think rape should look like and mm-hmm. it just goes on to um how laws don't really su- support survivors There's, there was this law that was just passed in minnesota 
the Minnesota Supreme Court ruled that a person who is sexually assaulted while intoxicated does not fit the designation for a more serious charge if they consumed alcohol or drugs voluntarily, which is very, very dumb because yes. it's, to it's say just the least, giving to does, like scratches the surface. It's just like giving giving this green light to like abusers and rapists where it's like, go, oh, if you want to get away with it, just get your victim drunk. And it's just like, mm-hmm. why and how and who thought of this? And then it was like six to zero. It was unanimous. Like no one thought this was just a bad idea, which mm-hmm. is very shocking to me. But, you know, how do we expect these victims and survivors to speak up if, you know, these laws don't even support? It's just, I have no words. (laughs) It's definitely written to protect the perpetrator. It's definitely written in a way like, and I do think that part of it is like the education piece, like you said, is people hear rape and they expect, they're thinking this very specific scenario in their head of like how things are, how it goes down and what's considered rape. But as we talked or as we, you know, broke down for an hour in our last episode, rape is a, you know, just the absence of consent. It's a lot more complex than that. And people don't, you know, sometimes people do walk away confused and not really knowing, especially when drugs or alcohol are involved. And it Mm -hmm. takes them a little bit to realize, oh, wait, you know, Um, and this definitely feels like or not even feel this is this law is written to seem seems to be more empathizing with the perpetrator than the victim right it makes it more black and white i think even for lawmakers or people who are perpetrating or i guess like prosecuting these cases that if somebody's murdered there's usually a dead body so then there's then you can go off of that. If something was stolen, there's usually missing property. But in that quote that Nathan had said that it's a little bit harder to prove um, unless it's violent. Um, And that Mm -hmm. is usually um, why people think of that as being like the idea of victim is like, this is something that I can see and now I can believe you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also don't want to believe that um, people can voluntarily consume alcohol and somebody el- and then somebody else is responsible for sexually assaulting them like that victim blaming idea of like well why would you get drunk if you didn't know the risk that was going to come with this um, if you said yes before and then you were drinking and they're probably thinking to some of that gray area that we talked about last mm-hmm. episode that we know that people or high or drunk or under the influence and have sex all the time. We know that, and some people probably see that as like, well, that I've done that and Mm -hmm. it's, it's been okay. So this person must've just been changing their mind, not thinking that maybe other people are using it as a way to perpetrate violence against somebody else or abuse. Yeah. And the fact that there's 28 other jurisdictions with similar laws is just like, ouch, Mm -hmm. like why? If, I don't know, it just feels like the people who are supposed to be protecting you aren't doing it. And then society is just pointing fingers. It's just impossible to just ask these victims and survivors to be like, well, trust us, we can help you. And when all of these laws and just society in general is not very accommodating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that kind of makes me think about, I mean, that specifically... I think when the the reason for that law, I, I can only imagine is thinking if, you know, there's too much of a gray area, I guess, that if this perpetrator 
was also incapacitated. Their victim was also incapacitated. This person who's the perpetrator should not have to go to prison for for this situation. And what that tells me is that's kind of a bigger a bigger statement on our prison system and people don't see it as a rehabilitation at all like if it was a rehabilitation Mm -hmm. and you could say okay this person who is a perpetrator they need to go to this place where they can get help or they need they need to go where they can get educated and help and be separated from the general population for a while until they are uh, rehabilitated and then they can re-enter society but that's not people think of it no your life is ruined at that point it's a good point yeah and i think that's what a lot of times you hear victims say they want i think a lot of times it's not even so much and and sometimes that can prevent people from reporting too if it's someone that they know or someone in their family but it's not so much like oh i want to see them rot in jail it's i want this to not happen anymore i want them to not do this to anybody else i I just want it to stop yeah and yeah, I do think that there's a really good point about how we re- rehabilitate uh, people and how, you know, throwing them in jail isn't necessarily the answer to deal with, isn't necessarily going to solve it, I guess I should say. Yeah, especially for a lot of people where, like, I, that we've already talked about, like, law enforcement and I guess the criminal justice system is just, it hasn't been good to them or their community. Mm-hmm. So their way and their option of, do I report this crime that happens to me or do I potentially introduce somebody I know into a system that will potentially like ruin their life that will perpetuate other forms of violence against them? So then now we're both in this situation when it could just be me. I can handle this. I can do this on my own. I can just sort of work through this and take it all and carry it on my shoulders. I don't want to have to drag somebody else into this, um, which speaks a lot to the strength of people who experience sexual violence, right? Um, to think about other people and not so much get that for themselves is unfortunate and heartbreaking. And it also speaks yeah. to our mentality around needing help is actually a sign of weakness and needing to get help mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. is problematic in its own way. And it's, and it's a sign that you're broken or that you need being fixed is not not okay right which then also ties back to that idea of that men can't be victims that Mm -hmm. there's a specific idea of what it means to be a victim and what it means to be a perpetrator that if the social norms and the the socialization that comes with being a man is to be strong and not ask for help um, and to not be vulnerable specifically in the ways that women are seen as vulnerable then it's hard to come forward and ask for help or ask for support um, because then people think, well, you're you're not strong, you're weak. Why did you let this happen to you? Which is unfortunate. It's a system that doesn't benefit anyone because A, it's not supporting survivors and it's not rehabilitating people who are committing violence against other people. So yeah, mm-hmm. the whole system needs to change for all of our sake. Um, so with that, let's take a break. Let's take our self-compassion break do our self-compassion tip, and then we'll come back to talk a little bit more about other things that we can do to create consent culture in a culture where sexual violence hopefully is eliminated and doesn't happen. Our self-compassion tip for this episode is to try replacing shame with self-compassion. Many of us experience shame when we make a mistake, say the wrong thing, 
or fail in a way that's hard for us to accept. Shame can make us judge ourselves or feel difficult emotions like anger, fear, sadness, or frustration. We may even fear the judgment of others. Take a moment to remind yourself that you are a human being that struggles and makes mistakes. No one is perfect, but sometimes our inner critic or the expectations of others makes us feel like we have to be. The next time that you're feeling the weight of shame, show yourself kindness. You can start with thinking about what support you would give to a loved one in the same situation and do the same for yourself. If you feel shame after doing something that was hurtful or harmful to someone else, self-compassion can help us care for ourselves and others while taking responsibility for hurtful actions instead of avoiding responsibility to avoid feelings of shame. We are all capable of making mistakes, but they don't have to make us who we are. Now, let's get back to the episode. All right, we're back and we're going to talk about changing culture norms and creating that consent culture. And the first thing I'm going to say is start by believing that this happens in your community. I know that, you know, we spend a lot of time dissecting headlines. So we're talking a lot about really famous people and celebrities, but this happens to everyday people that you interact with. I mean, statistically, when we look at how common, um, you know, sexual assault and domestic violence occurs, it's there's just no way that there's not people that you're interacting with on your daily life that have experienced violence. So it's important to keep that in mind, you know, just in more empathetic interactions with people but also yeah yeah. but also just the idea that to note that this isn't it might seem like it's this far-reaching thing because we see it in movies and we hear it you know in the news but do know that um that this starts with each and every one of us in our daily interactions so that this is definitely something that is a matter of what we do in our own communities and how we interact with each other in our own communities so so how we prevent that is learning new behaviors right like how do we normalize consent in our everyday interactions and not make it awkward anymore and that's really just changing you know changing our behaviors until they're the new culture until they're I mean and you do see it um I feel like each generation, you know, when I watch like my children interact with their friends and, you know, when I see teenagers that I know through my through uh, my educational groups and stuff like that, like their interactions, they, they're a little bit more cognizant of consent, I feel, than yeah than we were and maybe our older uh, generations. But um, so it does get better, but it's it's through, you know, building relationship skills, being able to not only just communicate, not, not only communicate your boundaries in a respectful way, but also be able to uh, respect people's boundaries and and respect people's boundaries when they're different than yours. I think sometimes people, if someone has similar boundaries with you, than you, it's easy to accept. But I think sometimes the breakdown can happen when someone's boundaries are different than yours. So it's just a matter of like accept, respecting that and being comfortable. With hearing no. Yes. Being comfortable with rejection. <laughs> exactly. Like just change our whole way that we interact with one another and how we look at each other as autonomous people that aren't there to serve ourselves. Yeah, right. I, one of my favorite ways of doing this is sort of asking people like for a hug. Hey, can I hug you? It's mm-hmm. a, a sort of like, especially here in the South, it's mm-hmm. part of our culture mm-hmm. to greet people <laughs> with hugs or some sort of like physical contact and just asking like, hey, can I give you a hug? And going a little step further than that, because I feel like there's still like this re- culture where you ask, but there's still a little bit of this expectation to say mm-hmm. yes, even if you're uncomfortable. So I practice everyday consent by saying, can I give you a hug? It's okay if you say no. 
So the Mm -hmm. option is there too um, for them to say no. And they know that that's something that I'm thinking and that I don't have this expectation. I don't know if it's received uh, in that way, but it's a start, right, of trying to change that norm that we usually have. I do think that that is a great start, too, because I feel like there's a lot of there's still a lot of societal pressure to not say no to people. Um, Yeah. So I do think that that's a good way to, like, normalize it, to kind of take the pressure off. Yeah, I think it's important to note that that is creating the consent culture is a process and it's something Mm -hmm. that we're promoting because at the end of the day, it creates a more equal uh, system for all that people are heard and they're living in a way that they're more free and they're more happy. I think a lot of the kind of backlash against this everyday consent and stuff like, oh, that's too PC or as a society, we're just getting more sensitive. But I think Mm -hmm. in reality, no, we're actually starting to listen to people who historically we've just silenced and we just didn't want to hear them. We just didn't want to pretend. We just pretended that their experience um, didn't exist. But now that we're able to uh, hear that they're actually not okay with some of the things that we do, it's kind of a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people. And so I think that it's important just to take that into consideration. If you're the kind of person who's like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to sit here and ask everybody for every little thing that's dumb, that's like pointless, Mm -hmm. just recognize that for a moment and try and keep that in mind and just be like, okay, I'm just going to try this and and see how it goes. And I think that you'll see that that um, will sort of had a, have a little bit of more e- equitable society. Right. And you don't always know that what you're doing could mm-hmm. potentially be making somebody feel more comfortable. But even without knowing, I would say it's a, a good guess that you're making people feel more comfortable in ways that you don't realize that you are. Um, that somebody can then start checking a box in their head of like, this person respects my boundaries and I feel a little bit safer when I'm ever I'm around them. Or this is a person that I can trust more than I thought before, which is a good thing, right? Because we want to have those healthy, positive connections with other people. But another part of creating that culture is not ignoring problematic behaviors and that includes the ones that are your own, right? Mm -hmm. So if somebody lets you know like, hey, what you did wasn't okay or it didn't make me feel comfortable or I would have preferred if you did this, be open to that and be willing to accept that feedback and change, Mm -hmm. right? We can grow and get better when we have other people helping us to do that and hold each other accountable. I know we live in a culture that's sort of perfectionist and we want to try to get things right and not be wrong. Uh, Mm -hmm. But if somebody's telling you a way to make them feel more respected and feel safer, that's a good thing. They're Mm -hmm. not rejecting you. They're trying to let you know that, hey, this would make me feel better. Yeah, It's natural to to feel defensive, but if we can just kind of just wait to sit past that first instinct to say no i'm mm-hmm. not wrong just take a moment and be like okay why why did they bring that up to me in the first place and um i think that's how we can actually create a, a better more cohesive community mm-hmm. yeah and take a moment to think about if this is uncomfortable for you sit and think about why it's uncomfortable for you why is this why mm-hmm. do i feel awkward that they said this to me um mm-hmm. Am I feeling entitled? Um, Am I feeling embarrassed? Am I feeling shame? Um, Mm -hmm. Those are all signs that, hey, 
take a self-compassion break, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Um, Nobody's perfect. Um, Feeling these feelings are a part of being a human being and experiencing the range of human emotions. Yeah, nobody's going to be perfect, but take that opportunity to check in with yourself instead of trying to then turn it back and put it on somebody else so you don't have to feel uncomfortable. We don't need to pass uncomfortable feelings back and forth. It doesn't need to be one person has to leave being uncomfortable and it's not going to be me. Hopefully we can get to a place where everybody involved feels comfortable. Yeah, and if we want to work towards this, you know, if we want to work towards uh, changing the culture and changing the norms, that also means looking internally too. And, uh, you know, if you're given feedback, you know, thinking about how you can change and feeling shame isn't, you might feel shame, but don't just dwell in the shame. Like, like Tiara said, like have self-compassion and then figure out how you can change and like start building towards the society that you want as well. Right. And this is some of that, the conversations that we have when we're doing prevention education with youth and young adults in schools and in college settings, Mm -hmm. when we're talking about consent it's important to have these conversations with youth and young adults because that's the time where generally you're becoming interested in having uh, personal relationships with other people outside of your family. You're developing close friendships. You're maybe starting romantic and sexual relationships, and you want to have a good foundation with good information. There's a lot of information out there. If you want to be informed about sex or if you want to be informed about relationships, that information is there. Your friends can give you information. The internet can give you information, but it's not always good information or it doesn't always include information about consent and boundaries and healthy relationship skills. Um, so that's why it's important to have those conversations, um, which is things that we've talked about um, in previous episodes. If you want to learn more about what that looks like in the school system, go back to episode one. We talked about that um, on episode one. Um, but we also talked about like youth. I think it was episode two was cuties, right? Where we mm-hmm. talked a little bit about education with youth. Um, so if you're interested in hearing more about that, go back to those two episodes where we talked about education with youth and why it's so important to start when they're young. I want to add too, uh, as far as the education piece is like the juror education piece, right? Like so a lot of times you will see these court cases where we, where us as educators and people in this movement are, you know, just I mean, not to say we're used to seeing it, but, you know, unbelievable sometimes the uh, what comes out of a ruling with a sexual assault case or a domestic violence case. So a, a part of that education piece is we're, we're educating future jurors, people who need to know the definition of consent so that if they are a juror on one of these cases, they can with confidence know what consent is and what if it did or did not take place. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And the jur- jurors are you know, they're supposed to be a representation of society. So obviously it makes sense that if our society is uninformed right? and, um, true. you know, ignorant to these things and the, mm-hmm. the jury's going to, going to say that. So we have to, to educate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and another thing to think back um, and be, I guess, as we're going forward, thinking about changing cultural norms is to also think about how these norms are going to be different for different people, that it's not a one size fits all and that there's a lot of uh, history that feeds into these norms that we have about sexual violence and who's the perpetrator and who's the victim, Um, that when you add in uh, things like racism and classism and 
ableism and sexism, that these things also contribute to an environment that further perpetuates sexual violence. That when there's this stereotype that women of color are like they're heavily sexualized, Mm -hmm. that sexual violence can't happen to them or why else if you're sex when you sexualize somebody, it's easier to turn them into an object. I believe that, um, this is a quote that I've heard that when you sexualize somebody, it's easier to turn them into an object. And when you turn somebody into an object, it's one of the first steps of perpetuating violence against them. Mm -hmm. Um, so when you objectify somebody or you believe that, um, this is just a part of who they are based off of a stereotype, then when they come forward and they say that they've experienced sexual violence, um, then people may think, well, what else would you expect to happen mm-hmm. to you? Or this idea that there's also like the historical, the stereotype around men of color um, being perpetrators um, and being violent perpetrators specifically for white women. I think of like the Emmett Till case, a mm-hmm. young teenager um, lynched in a tree for being whistled or saying mm-hmm. allegedly whistling at a white woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not new, right? Like when we talked about like that history of women being viewed as property and not having rights, there are a lot of historical contexts for that continue to perpetuate the violence that we see happening. Um, and mm-hmm. then when you have a criminal justice system that's harder on people of color when doing like giving rulings and judgments, some people may you have Brock Turner who we don't want to ruin his life or he didn't know what he was doing because he was so rich or whatever the argument was for affluenza or whatever they said that mm-hmm. he just he didn't he doesn't know consequences because he's rich and he's never had to have consequences but they wouldn't use the same argument for a person of color mm-hmm. um, who doesn't have the money so that's where classism and racism come in but there's also this idea um, that things like celebrities if we have this idea of Bill Cosby as mm-hmm. an example the person who's everybody's father on TV um, and this upheld standard of a good father. It's hard to believe because we have this idea of who he is because of the money that he has and the influence that he has, or that it's easier to take advantage of people because of their ability that I think I mentioned another episode that the Americans with Disabilities Act wasn't passed until 1990, which still blows my mind. Mm-hmm. I was born in 1990. I'm 31. That means mm-hmm. that that act is only 31 years old. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be that way. So knowing whenever we're thinking about changing culture, know that it's not just getting involved in addressing sexual violence, that when you're getting involved in um, very timely movements right now against racial injustice and racial violence and institutionalized violence, you're also being a part of the conversation to address sexual violence Mm -hmm. because it's all connected. When we try to chip at different inequalities in the system we're chipping at other inequalities in the system and we want to try to break it all down to make a better system that's better for everybody not just for the people who built it to benefit themselves totally and i i like that yeah i like that you brought up the americans with disability disabilities act because not only did that help start creating the conversation and um, you know, humanizing people with disabilities. It gave uh, people with disabilities some actual rights and it gave them some more equality. But also it's, I was doing some research for this episode and saw that people with physical and mental disabilities are, are twice as likely to be sexually mm-hmm. assaulted. 
So mm-hmm. that is something that we don't really think about, but it also goes to your like the dehumanizing kind of aspect. Not only is it easy to yes. say like, oh, this yeah. person's not like me, so they're not as human or or as like me and then also there's of course the the part where this person may it may be harder for them to uh tell on me type of thing Mm -hmm. yes yeah the crime of opportunity right if you see the opportunity there then you'll take it Mm yeah yeah it definitely puts um those populations are more at risk and you can't talk about you're absolutely right. You can't talk about sexual violence and not also talk about all the uh, inter, all the interplay that goes along with that in society with, you know, racism and ableism and classism, because all those play a part in not only, you know, the crimes themselves, but also in the aftermath, like who's believed, who gets justice, all of that looks different depending yeah, on who can who, bail on, themselves out exactly all of those all every single piece of that is different depending on who the players are involved um and what the reaction is uh even the public reaction is different depending on who the players are that are involved yeah um and something that when we were preparing for this podcast um something that uh, megan you said that really stuck with all of us when we were talking about how important it is specifically in with this context of it's important for us to check our own biases or biases and to think about Mm -hmm. like the conditioning that we have to think about um, when we think about sexual violence, like who's the victim, who's the perpetrator and who should get justice and who should not get justice. There was something that you said, and I won't quote it because I think you said it better than I did. Yeah. And I, and I heard this from someone else, but it's basically like the first thought that we typically have is the thought that, society has conditioned us to have so and, it, and that can be with anything it could be uh maybe you're just making a judgmental thought about something someone you something someone's wearing or something but it's the second thought that's what you've learned it's the second thought of like who you want to be and what yeah like your second thought is who you're trying to be right so like it's okay and i think sometimes we might guilt ourselves for that like first thought you have but just know that that first thought you have isn't necessarily what you believe it's what you've been conditioned to think in that situation. And when we have, when we take a moment and think twice, <laughs> um, that's when we can check ourselves and be like, well, how do I feel? How, what is, who am I going to be in this situation? What is my goal? Like, do I want to be a part of the change? Which goes back to that self-compassion tip of something else that we had talked about was that there's this idea when we were talking about perfectionism, um, especially like now in like this culture where people are afraid of being called out or they're afraid of being canceled, mm-hmm. um, that there's also this expectation of being um, perfect and being mm-hmm. an ally or an advocate or going right. out and being part of social norms change and people don't want to get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the fear of getting it wrong prevents people from even getting involved in the first place or trying Absolutely. to make a step because they don't want to get called out. But We've had times where we look back, like even us doing this job, we get paid to do it. We make this podcast where we think back and we're like, wow, I did something that was not cool or mm-hmm. I've, I've grown from that and I've changed. I'm different. Thank goodness I'm different and I'm trying to make a change. Um, so I'm sure that if you're listening, you probably have felt that too, um, that I want to say a good majority of people want to get involved and not have these things happening in the community but a they don't know the step to take or they're afraid of getting it wrong and 
um, sometimes you might get it wrong too. But know that you're another example that we usually give is that once you're sort of like society's kind of like a dirty fishbowl um, and there's a lot of problems going around and sometimes you're aware of it and sometimes you're not. And then when you're made aware of it, you're still living in the dish, like the fishbowl. You're still having to clean it up while you live in it. So you're still being influenced by the norms. You still have the same expectations as everybody else. You still are seeking justice from the same system. Um, but you want to get more people to come together um, to try to clean up that fishbowl so it gets cleaner and healthier for everybody involved. Um, and another part of that, uh, as we've been going on and talking, is to create environments where we can hear these experiences from other people. I think the next piece to this is how we can create environments so that we're all ready to hear these experiences and how that we how we can better support survivors. Are we even creating a safe space for people to, you know, tell us their stories? And I think that's something that we need to look at and how we can create those environments, um, listen to people's experiences, listen to how they want to heal, listen to how they want to live. Um, I mentioned, you know, earlier that sometimes we, it's harder to understand when people are different than us, but that's what, you know, being supportive is all about is listening to what other people uh, might need that's different than your needs and accepting that and supporting them in that. Also believing. <laughs> and that means <laughs> believing sometimes means accepting something really bad about somebody that you may really like and somebody you may really respect. And, and sometimes it means having to, you know, hear really uh, hard truths about people that you like. And, um, you know, we because we talk about headlines, we've talked a lot about people who people might like a lot and the things that they've done. And all those, you know, all those pieces go into like us creating that environment, because if we don't have the environment there to hear these experiences, then we're not really giving survivors a, a place to, to tell them, to tell anybody. Uh, we also need to create norms around talking about consent and bodily autonomy. I think that goes back to like what we were saying earlier about just having consent normalized in everyday interactions. We, uh, yeah. you know, have a tendency to just make assumptions about people wanting to shake our hands, you know, or hug or whatever it is. And I think if we can, it's just a small step of creating that norm around the fact that we all have our own bodily autonomy and that we all have the right to say how we want to be touched at any given time in any given situation. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, culturally we have like made some steps for that. But like we were talking about mm -hmm. in part one of this episode, how students still feel really awkward talking about consent mm -hmm. when, it, when it comes yeah. to, um, you know, relationships. So I think that we just continue to to normalize that and normalize that with, with youth to um, – to where it's not unsexy to talk about, uh, you know, what you want with somebody. Yeah. yeah. And let's see it in media. Mm -hmm. I want to yes. watch movies where people ask and it's not just the you go in and you do it and then you step back and then look at their reaction. Um, let's see what their reaction is when we ask them before we do it. I would like to see that. <laughs> I think that's such a good point to like how – that's what's needed as part of social changes because media reflects so much of like what we do in society and media so often becomes like the culture, you know, pop culture at the very least. Um, and yeah, I think seeing a lot more normalized consent in movies and television helps a long way. Um, and I, and I've seen it like 
And it's so rare that when I do see it, I'm like, oh my gosh, that was such a great, you know, example of consent that um, it really stands out. And I think when it's, no, when it's, uh, when you don't notice anymore, when I stop noticing it is when I'll know that it's been normalized. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like how we think and talk about these events when they happen, like, again, that could even be like how, what your immediate reaction was when you heard about um, some of these headlines, or if your immediate reaction is to ask uh, what the victim did to cause it to happen, or if, you know, think about where your mind goes. Um, and to how not you believe them, it. to mm-hmm. sort of get on that mental train of discrediting them the way that a perpetrator would. Exactly. Yeah. And then how do we talk about perpetrators and survivors? How do we, what do you think about perpetrators and survivors? Um, I think all that needs to change. And I think that's all going to be a part of um, how we can like transform to a more uh, a culture that, a culture where consent is really important. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I'm something that I'm thinking about now as we've like gone through, and I know that throughout this work, we use a lot of like language, like perpetrator, survivor, mm-hmm. victim, abuser, and it can be kind of hard for people to want to change behaviors because they don't want to have the label, mm-hmm. or the label doesn't quite fit what we uh, are experiencing or what we're hearing. Um, but something that can be helpful too is to just think about them as behaviors and it not being who you are because mm-hmm. you can change behavior. Sometimes for people, they think that they're a lost cause if they get this label. Mm-hmm. But we all have the ability or like the potential to perpetrate violence and also be victims of violence. So if we look at it as behaviors and behaviors that we learned, mm-hmm. they're also behaviors that we can change. So think about how you can change some of your behaviors. And it's not necessarily about who you are, but who you can become when you interact with people. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's important to note that you don't need like a PhD in consent to be able mm-hmm. to, you know, yeah. <laughs> go out there and advocate for your community. You know, it's just a simple fact that you want to make a change and want to make the place that you're living in just a lot more equitable and, you know, have space for respect is good enough. And that brings me to this episode's prevention and action tip. Um, So yeah, it's important to be aware that violence occurs on a continuum and we all play a role in social change. Say something if a friend makes a sexist joke, normalize asking for consent in your daily interactions, and check in with your own biases. It takes all of us to prevent sexual violence. We all have a role to play in prevention and when we reflect and change on how we think and talk about the issue of sexual violence and consent, we can really create a culture of respect, equality, and safety. So with that being said, until next time, speak up, speak speak out, out, and be outspoken. outspoken.